0: Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview.
1: Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're talking about rape in the criminal justice system and why victims are so frequently treated unjustly by that system. We'll talk about how laws, legal institutions, and even culture can stack the deck against those victims when it comes to assessing their claims and credibility. We're joined remotely by Deborah Turkheimer, a former prosecutor and a professor of law at Northwestern University School of Law. Professor, thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be talking with you.
1: Professor, today we're going to be discussing why in rape cases, the victims are often viewed as not credible. I guess, first off, why are we seeing this? Why is there a lack of recognition when it comes to these types of accusations?
0: It's such a great question. And I I think I should start by saying that the credibility discount, which is the, the term that I have coined to discuss this problem, is a widespread problem and so we see it in all sorts of contexts we see it in the workplace in the medical setting in classrooms in intimate relationships but my focus in the book is on credibility discounting when victims of sexual assault or sexual harassment come forward And there are a few reasons why you think that this is where sexual entitlement and gender relations and our notions of consent and our investment in the status quo, all of this collides, all of this sort of comes to a head. And there's so much on the line when it comes to these kinds of allegations. Typically, there's a power imbalance between the accuser and the accused. Uh, and so you know for for all of these reasons, I think it's really uh, the the best place to see credibility discounting in action.
1: And your book, you talk about a number of examples, and we'll go through examples at various stages of of the criminal justice process, from reporting to police encounters to trial, to even disbelief or or a lack of, Uh, validation from friends and family. But, you know, perhaps we could start with an example of a case that you think highlights the credibility gap in a particularly clear way.
0: Sure. This is um, someone named Abby Honnold, who uh, was a a, a college student in Minnesota. And she was at a tailgate when she ended up meeting a, a friend of a friend. And the two of them went His apartment to to get more alcohol for this tailgate was right across the street. She was planning to be away from the tailgate for a few minutes just to help him transport whatever they were bringing back for the tailgate. And instead, when they got into this man's apartment, he brutally, brutally raped her several times. In fact, and when she got back to the tailgate, she was, you know, by her own account a mess and she was crying and disheveled and someone in the crowd actually suggested that someone should call 911 that it looked like she was hurt and uh, that she needed help. So this was a, a case where there was an immediate report. And you know as we know that that is not typical. often there there's a, a delay and even more often reports never come to formal authorities. but in this case, it did. And, you know, Abby describes the first contact with the police officers as being really horrible. She remembers them telling her that she could not have a friend ride in the ambulance to the hospital with her because that friend could help her to change her story or get her story straight. She wasn't allowed to call her, her mom. She wanted to call her mom. And she remembers being told that this was really embarrassing for her. And she probably didn't want to tell her mom about it at this point anyway. And it really sort of got worse from there. Uh, she went to the hospital. She had a rape kit done. The nurse who, who collected the forensic evidence recalls that this was one of the the, the most violent uh, attacks that she'd ever seen, at least by virtue of the, the evidence that they collected and the physical injury that was sustained internally and, and externally And yet when the uh, detective who was investigating the case was told this, the response was very, very dismissive. And it was reported as something along the lines of kids are into all sorts of rough sex these days.
1: This case particularly struck me in a, a couple of ways. One was the callous, if not cruel response of the police in downplaying her claims and then charges were eventually brought after other victims, unfortunately, had to suffer the same horrible attack.
0: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there was a a long delay from Abby's perspective. His version of events was that this was consensual and there wasn't an arrest for quite some time. Meanwhile, she went back to campus. She was branded a liar. She was called things like psycho, like slut. And uh, her her life was really, really difficult. Ultimately, as you say, there was a prosecution. Abby wasn't the only one who had been hurt, who had been assaulted by this individual. But it really took more than her word, as is often the case, to get any kind of justice in the end. And, and the journey along the way was really terrible. And I think part of the reason that I I tell this story is because it also illustrates the the devastating effect of the credibility discount on survivors and also the silencing effects of of credibility discounting. Because sadly, Abby was was sexually assaulted again by a, a different man, and she chose not to report that incident. She told me about it, and I think she said she had not Uh, told more than a handful of folks, none of them official, none of them law enforcement. It was just too much for her to to go through this again.
1: I would be in the same exact same shoes as her if I had gone through what she did through this incident that was there was more evidence, uh, perhaps. And there she wasn't even believed. Why would a rational person feel like putting themselves through that again? Again, this was this case is particularly troubling, but perhaps indicative of the problem we'll be discussing today at large.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of the the, the stories have um, certain features in common and they illustrate a pattern or several patterns um, that I think are really important to get across. And at the same time, I really wanted to be careful in the book and in how I told these stories not to flatten anyone's experience or suggest that, that they're all the same, because of course, they're not. And so it's really important for us to attend to the differences and the particulars and at the same time to extract some of these patterns that we see over and over again and and subject them to to scrutiny and, and critique.
1: Why don't we dig a little bit deeper into what you mean by credibility of the reporter, of the victim here? We're talking about more than just whether the story adds up. We're talking about how that person is perceived how the person is perceived relative to the accused.
0: Yeah, you know, two factors really come into the mix here. One is the trustworthiness of the reporter, and then the other is the plausibility of the claim. And, you know, there's some overlap there, but I think we can tease each one of these out and think about them independently. So is this person trustworthy? Is this someone whose word... Um, you know, all things being equal and without reason to doubt it, I'm going to tend to believe. And, you know, part of a problem for accusers is that women who allege abuse tend not to be seen as trustworthy. Um, and there are all sorts of cultural myths and all sorts of baggage that comes along with making this kind of accusation and all, all sorts of, um, I think, familiar figures in our imagination that that are sort of triggered when someone comes forward with an allegation. So for instance, a gold digger, that comes up a lot in this context. Attention seekers, that's something else that, that, that we're sort of often default to when someone comes forward. Or maybe someone is a political pawn. That's something we see in the political context. Or, you know, often it's not that someone's not trustworthy because she's lying, but it's because she's confused. And there's, there's sort of a large mythology around kind of confused women and, and, and just sort of being mistaken about things that people really would not likely be mistaken about. So those are some of the reasons why an accuser might be seen as untrustworthy, reasons having nothing to do with her, her actual trustworthiness.
1: Nowhere are, are are you suggesting or do you suggest in your book that every single reported incident must be believed and that there's never a case of inaccurate or a, a wrongful accusation. In fact, you talk about how the there are some statistics out there that the numbers, while very low, I think you quoted four or five percent, while the numbers are very low, they do occur. It's more the fact that even very strong allegations, even credible allegations seem to be easily dismissed.
0: Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. Of course, I'm not suggesting that every allegation is true or that we ought to proceed as if it is. The problem is that there's a disconnect between, as you're suggesting, the incidence of false allegations and the type of allegations most likely to be false, And then these these perceptions that many, many, many of us have, even unknowingly, about the the likelihood that someone is either lying or is mistaken. And so it's this gap that concerns me and that is sort of the subject of of examination in the book. Why do well-intentioned people who have no interest in, in being unfair, in being unjust, in being dismissive without warrant... What are the forces that are acting upon all of us um, that we may not notice, we may not be aware of? What are the misconceptions and the biases that are operating even when we're trying our best to do right?
1: Why don't we talk through, I mentioned in the introduction a couple of layers. There's layers in law enforcement, there's laws that in and of themselves can be harmful, and then there's culture, Maybe it's part of American culture, or maybe it's part of what it means to be human. It seems to make these allegations difficult for people.
0: Yeah, all of this I call the credibility complex. And it's these forces that you mentioned, primarily culture and law, and of course those are intertwined. And then culture imprints itself on our individual psyches. And so you know, each one of us is sort of a, a product of our culture. The laws themselves have an impact on the way we think about all of this. And then there are these systems that are populated by people. And so law enforcement officers are, of course, also participants in our culture as our jurors, as our Title IX officers. And so credibility is a form of power, and it's distributed along really familiar axes of power. And so when we pull back and think about some of these questions in a more structural way, I think there's a lot of payoff. I think we can see these issues in a very different light.
1: Well, why don't we start with the difficulty with the interaction with law enforcement? What about the law enforcement interview or what about the reporting process makes these claims so much more likely than they should be to be dismissed or diminished?
0: So when law enforcement officers come to this kind of an interview you know maybe when the allegation first comes to the police and i'm going to be clear here and say that this is not again true with regard to every law enforcement officer. some law enforcement officers some agencies are doing this really well so i'm going to generalize and say that very often what we see is a failure to integrate the best understandings from neuroscience, the neuroscience of trauma, which really tells us that when someone describes a traumatic event, it is very unlikely that that person is going to be able to present a narrative that is linear, that is complete, that is granular in all of its detail. Um, And what we know about memory and how traumatic memory in particular is encoded and retrieved makes it unlikely that that's the kind of story someone's going to tell. And yet we can understand that that law enforcement officers are very much looking for that kind of account. And they understand that, you know, ultimately, if this is a case that's going to go forward, it's got to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt in court, that very highest standard of proof in our legal system. And so there really is sort of a, a tension here between what law enforcement officers understandably are sort of thinking about and and looking for, and then the realities of abuse and the realities of surviving trauma.
1: You talk about an interesting distinction between central details and what you call peripheral details and how the brain in, in these tense moments, in these moments of extreme fight or flight, that they're there's a tendency of the brain to record these central details and perhaps ignore certain peripheral details and how that can be used against the victim there's an example in in the book i wonder if you would mind sharing with the audience where the victim couldn't remember where they were sitting or where they were located and that was used as enough to to dismiss a, uh, an allegation
0: yes and this was actually in a in a campus proceeding where the the standard is lower than in criminal court. And so preponderance of the evidence is is enough to get the fact finder uh, to find for the complaining witness in that context. And even then with this lower standard, the fact that the accuser couldn't remember, as you say, where she was sitting before the rape that she described, that was enough for the, the person deciding to say, I just don't believe it, right? She's just not remembering enough for me to say with, with the certainty I need that this happened. And that's a really nice example of the kind of detail that may well not be encoded under these you know, severe constraints on memory.
1: We've done some interviews on memory evidence and memories in the court. It's very interesting the way often some of these critical memories, because you're so likely to keep going back to them and thinking about them and analyzing them you may actually be changing them in some of the peripheral details you, you may throw in that perhaps you are drinking coca-cola versus pepsi or uh, which then could be used to undermine the case
0: yeah i mean memory is tricky and yet again neuroscientists have learned a lot about it and part of what i would hope to see and other experts in this field would like to see is trauma-informed interviewing, trauma-informed investigation, not because that's always going to point to the answer, but at the very least, and I think this is important, it should keep officers working a case rather than dismissing it prematurely. So what we often see in the law enforcement context, which is, I think, where we initially started this part of our conversation, is that These investigations are getting short-circuited. They're being dismissed early on before there's an opportunity to gather corroborative evidence, before there may be an opportunity for law enforcement officers to to gather the kinds of proof that would make a case viable. And instead, what we're seeing, again, is that these cases, there's a credibility determination early on. There's the determination that this is a, quote-unquote, he said, she said contest that cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And then that's the end of the investigation. And so, you know, what researchers who've who've looked at particularly shelved rape kits and asked officers about the decision to shelve the kit, to not pursue the case, what they've concluded is that if these officers would just continue to hunt for evidence not necessarily will every case be provable beyond a reasonable doubt. No one no one can make that claim. Some of these cases aren't. But that at the very least, more cases will come to prosecutors and more cases will be able to make their way through to a plea or to a, a trial.
1: And, you know, we talk about the standards of, of guilt. You, you mentioned beyond the reasonable doubt. But for an arrest, you, you just need probable cause. So the standard for investigating should certainly be lower than the standard for a jury to convict to make the final determination. But the he said, she said aspect of it with rape and with sexual assault seems different than with other crimes where perhaps he said, she said might be enough for a prosecutor to bring charges.
0: What's interesting is that the law of rape used to have a unique corroboration requirement, meaning that without proof beyond the word of the accuser, the case could not even reach a jury. It was legally sufficient. Uh, So yeah, as a matter of law, it could go nowhere. And that is no longer formally a requirement that's in place. And yet we see vestiges of it. And there is a reason that there was such skepticism of the word of accusers enshrined in our criminal law. And it really should come as no surprise that we haven't been able to fully rid ourselves of that kind of skepticism. It's it's informal now and we see it in all sorts of different ways. But 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 the notion that sort of he said, she said dooms the allegation. I think really does reflect continuing discomfort with, with the idea that a an accuser's word is evidence in court. It can be powerful evidence. And and certainly outside of court, it may well be enough to convince us. And it may be that we should uh, allow ourselves to be convinced by the word of an accuser outside of court. And yet for many of us, the, the sort of he said, she said characterization just means I give up. I can't decide. And of course, that means the status quo stays in place.
1: Why don't we talk about where the law, and some of this is historical law, some of it's no longer good law, but where the law has really let victims down. Uh, There's three particular areas that come to mind. One is this unique corroboration requirement maybe you can explain what is this corroboration requirement and maybe what case what cases uh, established this rule
0: so there were a trio of unique requirements in rape law that reflect this orientation toward great skepticism and a real unwillingness to allow a conviction to ensue based on the word of typically a woman. And so one was the corroboration requirement that said a case could not even reach a jury without some evidence beyond the word of the accuser. And again, to be clear, that that's just for rape cases, that, that we saw this kind of corroboration requirement. There was also a prompt outcry rule, which said that if the victim or alleged victim did not make the allegation fairly quickly. And, you know, that would vary depending on the jurisdiction, but, you know, within a matter of, of days in some instances, again, the case could not proceed. So this is, to be clear, very different from sort of a statute of limitations rule that applied across the board. This was something that that just applied to rape allegations
1: and in many of the cases it was as you said it could be as as short as days or weeks or you know even three months is quite a a short period of time
0: especially given what we know about how difficult it can be for survivors to come forward and all of the reasons which have become ever more apparent in the me too era that a survivor might not report promptly the third requirement was this cautionary instruction that was given to juries. It was an instruction that informed them that apart from this very high standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt that applies in all criminal cases and, and rightly so, that there was special reason to be careful about, uh, convicting someone of rape and, uh, And so all of this gets, you know, gets written into the model penal code in 1962. All of this sort of gets reflected in in state laws around the country. And then slowly, most of these formal requirements have either been abolished or relaxed. Um, But I think it's so important to see how recently our criminal law really baked in this skepticism and then to trace these formal rules to their more informal incarnation that we see today.
1: You mentioned that the Model Penal Code rule is currently in a a review process that I I believe began in 2012. Is that something you're involved with?
0: Yes, I am a a member of the American Law Institute and I have been uh, consulting on on this project for many years now.
1: Professor, you mentioned there were three areas where the law had traditionally, I would say, let victims down or put added burdens in the way of victims in the way of reporting. But there are more than three. You know, one that you also talk about in your book relates to intoxication. And from what I understand, the law there still seems pretty backwards in some jurisdictions. Can you explain what does the law say when it comes to victims? I was going to say women, but it could be men as well, who are intoxicated at the time of the incident, uh, at the time of the rape.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. I I do sometimes use gendered pronouns. Um, It is true that the majority of victims of abuse are women and girls, but of course, we should note that men and boys and non-binary people can also be victims of abuse. And, you know, nothing that, that I say or that I write um, should be taken to, to, to ignore or to overlook that, that reality. Some of my most searing cases that I prosecuted involved uh, teenage, teenage boys. So I, I, I do, I do want to take a moment and just, uh, just say that. The law of intoxication is somewhat retrograde. It's, a, it's another one of these vestiges, I think, of a, a way of thinking about who's to blame that you know many of us, I think, profess to have discarded. And so the idea here is that just as distrust is baked into our laws, so is the blame shifting that we so often see in our culture. One of the trigger points for blame uh, for people is often intoxication and is often an alleged victim who comes forward and says, I was assaulted and I was drinking beforehand. This doesn't comport with, with many people's ideas of how a victim should behave. And so often that's another way in which fault is placed on the survivor. And the, w- w- the way we see that in the, in the criminal law is a distinction between so-called voluntary intoxication and involuntary intoxication. And in you know, many jurisdictions still, someone who is involuntarily intoxicated, you know, which can also include, for instance, uh, someone who's roofied or who's given a so-called date rape drug, that person is seen as a, as a true victim in a way that a person who voluntarily imbibed alcohol or maybe even drugs is not seen as a true victim. And so the laws that pertain to each of those individuals can look a little bit different and I think reflect this real unease with uh, people who come forward and say, I was assaulted and I was drinking. And, you know, some of these, you know, some of these stories are Hard to read. I mean, you, you know, you sort of, some of the cases involve, you know, I'm thinking about a woman who went to a wedding and she did have a lot to drink and she did, you know, by her own account, you know, she, she was intoxicated. She was extremely intoxicated. And while she was extremely intoxicated, she was sexually assaulted by someone. And yet ultimately she couldn't get justice because this wasn't a case where she she had been involuntarily intoxicated it was she was responsible for her state of intoxication and therefore also responsible for her rape
1: yeah some of the cases that you cited were insane to me it wasn't just you're intoxicated so maybe you don't remember or you're intoxicated so that draws some question on how strong your memory uh, how how likely the details were to be confused. No, it was just, you were intoxicated, you did that of your own free will, so you're not capable of bringing a charge.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the point I think in the book to sort of putting these cases out there and telling these stories is to suggest that from a, a survivor-centered perspective, There really shouldn't be a difference in how we view these assaults and how we view this kind of victimization.
1: Again, that's not in every state, and that's not a hard and fast rule, and not even in in all the cases that you described, but in, in some jurisdictions, and particularly with some judges, that can result in cases being dismissed or even convictions overturned.
0: Yes. And this is another place, too, where, um, you know, sort of the the marital relationship can come into play. And it turns out that there are certain things that in some states people cannot do to someone unless they're married to them. And and sort of taking advantage of extreme intoxication or a state of so-called physical helplessness is one of those places where you see what used to be a, a full exemption for marital rape.
1: For those who are not familiar, what is the, or what was the marital rape exemption?
0: It was a blanket rule that said that the laws against rape did not apply within marriages. And so husbands were entitled to rape their wives. This was a common law rule that has been abolished in all of the states, although it, you know, wasn't so long ago that these rules were still in place. The reform sort of took place around the 70s. But again, what I point out in the book is that we see traces of these rules even still. And I think that's important for a couple reasons. One is that the laws themselves ought to be reformed in places where the credibility discount is baked in in the ways that I show. But I also use the law as sort of a mirror We can hold up this mirror and look at our culture. There's a relationship between our cultural blind spots and then the laws themselves. And here, when we're talking about intoxication, voluntary intoxication, marital rape distinctions, these are places where we can see the blind spots.
1: Professor, let's move the conversations towards first reporting and the police interactions with victims. Here, you write about a reluctance or often an initial automatic dismissiveness amongst some police officers. What do you attribute that to?
0: Well, I think I'd say first that I argue in the book that this is a widespread problem, that the law enforcement setting is one place where we see it and where the stakes are very, very high. Because, you know, to state the obvious, this is where people are coming to get some relief from the criminal justice system. This is the first funnel point. And so, you know, I I don't want to suggest that reporting to a police officer is just the same as reporting to a friend. But I do want to say that, again, we, we live in this culture. We breathe the same air. We drink the same water. And so it's predictable that that law enforcement officers would have these same biases that we see, uh, you know, across our society. So that's that's one sort of starting point. Um, it's also the case that there's a you know sort of a feedback loop here. So when officers see cases uh, like this one getting dismissed by their fellow officers it advances this notion that these are not the kinds of cases that should go forward or can go forward. And so we have this kind of system-wide distortion that is just kind of feeding itself when we have these very low arrest rates in sex crimes cases. We have a very high rate of unfounding. And so we should, again, not be surprised that officers look around them them and say, this isn't the kind of case that I see making its way forward.
1: You mentioned unfounded or, or, or allegations being deemed as unfounded. What were the numbers that you saw in your research when it came to police clearance rates, claiming that a certain number, certain percentage of their cases of rape cases were unfounded?
0: Well, there, there have been all sorts of studies of the rates of unfounding. And, you know, some of them look at major metropolitan areas. Some of them look across the country. And it turns out that unfounding, meaning that for any number of reasons, the officer has determined that this is not a case that can go forward. Maybe it's not provable. Maybe it's because there's some suggestion that this is a false allegation. Maybe it's because the the complainant wants to withdraw the complaint or not go forward, which is a you know interesting subcategory unto itself, because there are all sorts of ways that officers can push complainants in that direction. But this is sort of a catch-all that allows officers to classify the case and to sort of close it out without moving it forward. And the unfounding rates are really high, and they vary depending upon the jurisdiction, but they're um, high enough to sort of raise questions about why law enforcement officers are so reluctant to pursue these cases, at the very least to hand them off to prosecutors for a determination as to whether the case is 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 viable, whether it can actually be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. As you pointed out earlier, the standard for an arrest is is lower; it's a probable cause standard, and so it's worthy of attention that that's not what what tends to happen when these cases come to the police. The attrition rates, the dropout rates in the criminal justice system are really astronomical. I mean, let's first note that most cases of sexual assault never do get reported to police.
1: Yeah, I think that's an important thing to mention, that if we're talking about reporting, that's already a small fraction of total incidents, and for that to then be whittled down uh, so extremely uh means that of the cases of rape you're only seeing you know a fraction of a fraction that are are even brought to the prosecution phase.
0: Yeah, you said whittle down. I think that's a really good way to think about it. From the incident itself to law enforcement, that's a whittling stage, then from the police to prosecutors, from prosecutors then to some sort of case resolution, be it a plea, be it a trial. And then, you know, to, to maybe incarceration, the dropout rate of these cases is huge. The estimated number from Rain, which is the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, is that out of every thousand sexual assaults, a handful, maybe five, maybe six, result in incarceration of the perpetrator.
1: Wow. Going back to the police interactions, one area that struck me was the way that police seem to apply Merit to the emotional reaction of the victim and it was sort of a Goldilocks thing where if they were Too emotional. Oh gosh. Well, they're they're hysterical and maybe can't be believed and if they're too rational or too deadpan Then well, they must be lying This struck me as particularly impossible for for the victim Um, But maybe you can speak to what you uncovered in the research
0: it's a horrible bind. I mean, as you say, maybe even an impossible bind, it's like Goldilocks, but in a really perverted way that you can't, it's very difficult to be the right degree of emotional in order to trigger belief. And so there's a long history of dismissing women who are deemed hysterical. And so certain kinds of emotional reactions that kind of veer toward perceived hysteria are, are seen as overblown and not believable. And then on the flip side, you have, you know, some survivors are reacting in ways that don't seem emotional enough, where there's a sort of flatness or there's, there's some sort of emotional remove or detachment. And that in itself speaks to some officers as, as, being, as being unbelievable.
1: In your writing, you discuss one of the hurdles that victims need to overcome in many cases. And again, you talk about the stranger rape as perhaps the one that the criminal justice system gets right most frequently. But that relies on on this notion of a perfect victim and a monster criminal, uh, maybe we could speak to that a little bit. Why don't we start with this notion, and we've touched on it a bit, that the victim is somehow expected to be perfect in order for a case to be a strong one.
0: Yeah. So the perfect victim um, we can think about as someone who does everything right before the incident, during the incident, and after the incident. Before the incident, she's dressed appropriately, meaning not in any kind of provocative way that's going to tempt anyone. She isn't drinking. She isn't engaged in any kind of date-like interactions with the person who ends up assaulting her. During the incident, she fights back. She resists. Maybe she screams. Maybe she physically hurts or tries to hurt the assailant. And then afterwards, she immediately reports, and she's able to perfectly recount what happened, and there are no memory lapses. And then, of course, there's no contact whatsoever with the person who did this to her. There's they, they, that She severs all ties because she doesn't have any ties. And so that's what a perfect victim looks like. You know, the perfect victim, I should also say, has a race and has a, um, you know, a sexual identity and an orientation, this isn't just about gender. This is also about every place where we sort of assign marginalized social status to someone. And so, you know, the perfect victim is probably going to be white and be of an upper socioeconomic class, et cetera, et cetera. She's going to be be English speaking and she's going to be documented. And so in all of these ways, we can sort of say, if someone comes forward and she didn't do those things the way she should have done them, she doesn't look the way she should look. She isn't the right amount of emotional. She's going to have her credibility discounted in in every way that she doesn't comport with that perfect victim archetype.
1: It seems almost to me that it should should be criminal to bring up what the person was wearing. It just seems to be so beyond the the scope that discussing that or discussing whether or not they had been flirtatious or whether they or not not they have an active sexual life outside of the rape. you know These type of questions shouldn't even be, they should be excluded.
0: Well, I have a couple of thoughts. In an ideal world, of course, I agree with you. We may be getting closer to that ideal world, but we still see a focus on dress and sexual history. We see it within the law of sexual harassment. We see it within workplace sexual harassment law, particularly the Title VII cases, which I don't know that we're gonna talk about in detail here, but that's a place where there's a legally sanctioned focus on how a victim dressed and, and sort of provocative dress in quotes. And the Supreme Court has said that that's absolutely on the table in thinking about whether this person welcomed the harassment If we flip back to the criminal side, and we think recently to the the trial of of R. Kelly, what's interesting is that one of the victims was being cross-examined in a way that the judge found, I think, unacceptable, or at least borderline unacceptable. And this was cross-examination pertaining to the dress of, of the victims. And... And sort of the judge raised the question, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but sort of, why are we talking about this in this day and age? Why are we still asking questions about what she was wearing? But this is what happened in the courtroom. So we are still asking these questions.
1: As you mentioned, the law as a reflection of culture, you can have a beautifully written law. And if the jury has a, a culture that sees it a certain way, then, well, maybe it won't it w- you won't get to the right outcome.
0: Well, that's right, and I and I do want to say that defense attorneys have a job to do. They are representing their clients, and of course, they must do so within ethical guidelines and constraints and boundaries. But only if and when these arguments stop working with the jury, with you know the members of our of our society who are chosen to represent society. Only then will these kinds of arguments and, uh, and cross-examination stop, unless and until that happens, we're gonna keep seeing them in court.
1: A quick pause for those listening for CLE credit. The code for this interview is 90101. Again, that's 90101. And now back to the interview. And you mentioned fighting back. I, you know, on the legal side, I'd love to, to get a little more color there. In fact, there's been states where the law on fighting back has been pretty extreme. Not only was the victim required to fight back, but they were required to essentially give it all they had to risk being anything short of their own death to put a stop to the incident.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, this was the traditional rule that really applied Across across the board across the states, this was sort of the old rule of resistance, and as you say, sometimes resistance to the utmost. That's a quote from the from the law. Uh, reasonable resistance, earnest resistance, some kind of physical resistance that that showed that this was unwanted, and that this person was so outraged by the attack that she was willing to, as you say, risk anything to stop it.
1: You mentioned a case where the victim was, I believe, slapped and then shown a gun and told, you need to let me do what I'm going to do or I'm going to kill you. And then because she didn't resist further, probably because she didn't want to be shot, that was considered not enough resistance. And so the conviction was overturned
0: right. The, the woman's name was Cassandra Weeks, and she didn't fight back for reasons that I can certainly understand. It sounds like you can understand. Yeah. But because she didn't and because any fear that she might have had of him was deemed unreasonable, that wasn't enough to sustain a rape conviction. And so that was overturned.
1: Is that an ancient case? Are we talking about the 1920s there, or is that something from the modern era?
0: No, that's from the modern era. I don't have the, the exact date in my mind, but it is, it is not an old case. And I think it's a reflection of the, again, the continuation of these very old doctrines. It's easy to say that, that we've wholly discarded them, but we haven't. And I think another place where you see that is in verbal resistance requirements, um, which are, are still the, the, the rule in, in about well, half or more of the states.
1: What do you mean by that? Is this that they have to say the word no, stop?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a rule that says that, cons- that, that a person has to manifest unwillingness, that if a person does nothing, that that is equated with consent, that that's deemed to be consent. And so it, it continues to put the burden on the victim to, if not physically fight back, at the very least to verbally resist And passivity or silence or inaction is taken as consent. I think that those states that do the opposite and define consent in in affirmative terms that require an expression of willingness before someone is seen to have consented is closer to the mark.
1: I think about this with relation to you know what would i do in a in a moment of crisis you know a hostage situation or you know someone threatening my family with with a gun whether i'd be the person who would freeze or whether i'd be bold and take the actions that maybe perhaps i would hope that i would but i don't know maybe i would freeze up and and from what i've read it seems like that freezing experience can be difficult then when when that victim wants to bring charges.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a, a research literature on tonic immobility, uh, or you know, paralyzed paralyzed responses, on how that is a not uncommon reaction to something like an assault. Some victims um, who experience childhood sexual abuse develop a coping mechanism, which is to be passive and to sort of wait for it it to be over. There are lots of reasons why someone might not resist physically or verbally and still not be consenting. And yet the law has not sort of fully captured that reality.
1: We talked about the perfect victim. I think we should speak about the perpetrator as a monster versus what's often the case is that the perpetrator may be a human with some good qualities. Maybe we could speak to that a bit. How does this make the criminal case more complicated?
0: So the stranger rape paradigm gives rise to the perfect victim, which we've talked about, but also the idea that the the kind of individual, typically a man who would perpetrate this kind of rape is really deviant, is, you know, kind of unredeemably awful and is sort of very obviously a a sort of monster type. And the reality again is, is just that that is not what most perpetrators of sexual assault look like. They are our friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members. And the problem is that when we expect a perpetrator to look like that monster and an accused man doesn't look like that monster, it's, again, harder for us to believe that this person was capable of, of doing something like that. And so when the accused man doesn't fit our conception of what a perpetrator looks like, we're more apt to dismiss the allegation and to rally behind the man accused, especially when that person occupies a position of status, authority privilege. Um, You know, we venerate, we have heroes we venerate in our society. And everything that I'm saying is particularly true when it comes to actions against those men.
1: Professor, the example that comes to mind there is my empathy, my heartfelt empathy that I would have for any of any of any victim. But I can imagine the the first of Bill Cosby's Victims to come forward, just the insurmountable goodwill, as at this time, America's dad. He was the star of the most popular sitcom. He was a well known ph- philanthropist of a number of causes, but particularly in the black community. Coming forward against someone like that, who was for many a hero. We talk about the the credibility starting, you know, on a one to ten scale would be, you know, going against an eleven or going against some someone who really had all the credibility.
0: Yeah, some of the accounts of the women who came forward early on against Bill Cosby on their stories went nowhere, nowhere. Um, those are searing accounts, right? They kind of remind us that the person who comes forward first or maybe alone. Is in a in a very vulnerable position, especially when she's accusing someone with so much power, with so much social capital, with so much built-in credibility. and And I should say that the flip side of the credibility discount is credibility inflation, and that is what we do when uh, we boost the credibility, presumptively, when someone is typically more powerful in a position of status, prestige, et cetera. Bill Cosby being one one of many, many examples that we've seen in, in recent years of, of uh, men who were given this kind of benefit of the doubt and more. And ultimately, you know, in order to get any traction in a case against someone like that, it's gonna take more than one accusation and sometimes many more than one.
1: <laughs> And there you had the victims were were not all women of color. They were not all black women. There were white women as well. But some of the black women who came forward had a special type of allegation against them that they were somehow being traitors against the black community.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's. A lot that's been written about this and I certainly spoke to you know several black survivors who um, kind of related some of the pressures that they felt that were particular to their race and the race of the man they were accusing there are all sorts of reasons why accusing a black man particularly in the criminal setting is fraught especially for black women and so there's sort of there, there are these extra burdens we can think about on, on, a, on a Black survivor who's thinking about coming forward against a Black perpetrator.
1: Well, Professor, before we let you go, why don't we talk about how things can be improved? Because if there's so much going wrong, if there's so many victims whose concerns are not being addressed, so many cases where justice is not reached, well, at least there's there should be plenty of room to find improvement. Maybe you can take us some of the way there. Where do you see a more perfect justice for victims uh, involved in rape and sexual assault?
0: So I think about each one of those dimensions of credibility that we talked about early on in our conversation. I think about trust, and blame, and care. So trust, we I think can do better both within systems, formal systems and outside of them by getting rid of that mythology that surrounds perfect victims and monster abusers, we can better educate ourselves about trauma and the effects of trauma. And that is particularly true in the law enforcement setting. And it has some salience, I think, within courts as well. I think there's room for expert testimony and uh, ways to educate jurors about some of what we've been talking about. But if we can sort of reorient ourselves toward better understandings of of abuse, what it looks like, how victims behave, how abusers behave, we're more likely to, to not get hung up on the what happened part of a claim. When it comes to blame, I think it's really important to kind of recognize particular fact patterns that tend to trigger blaming impulses and to trigger that kind of blame shifting. And so we've talked about many of them. We've talked about intoxication. We've talked about dress, sexual history, and certain kinds of sexual histories can, you know, can lead us to to shift blame. And so being aware of all of that, and then again, training when when folks are in official roles where they're doing this kind of judging on a professional basis, I think would be helpful. And then the last piece of this, we haven't talked a lot about, but that's care. There's something called, uh, that I call the care gap, which is that we tend to orient ourselves to the pain of the powerful in our society. And we tend to be far more concerned with the potential for consequences. If someone is held accountable than we are with the person who's been hurt.
1: You spoke a bit about examples where the victim chose not to bring charges because they didn't want to de- derail the the lives of the person who assaulted them because they don't want to they don't want to ruin their life.
0: Yeah, this care gap can also get internalized and it can keep people from coming forward uh, because it can feel worthwhile just to let it go rather than to watch this person deal with consequences and accountability. And so, you know, I think that that care gap is something to, to watch for, to notice, to attend to, and to sort of, you know, each one of us decide to, to, to work on it on our own. That's a place where I think we can see cultural transformation only if we start with, you know, with individuals.
1: Relatedly, in some of the reports From victims, from individuals who were not believed, they write about how not being believed was a second trauma, was, if not another violation, hurt in a way that was similarly damaging to the initial trauma.
0: That was the most surprising thing for me in doing the research for this book and the conversations that I had with so many survivors about the aftermath of abuse, which is really what my book is about, to hear over and over again that the aftermath was as bad as or even worse than the abuse itself, that it was lasting, that it made people feel devalued, that it made them feel as if the community and their institutions were siding with their abuser and against them and how that made them feel like they didn't matter, and that that was more harmful or felt equally harmful to the abuse. I mean, that's that's something that I think we really ought to sit with for a while. That's a, that's astonishing, and that really tells us, I think, all we need to know about why we have to do better.
1: Professor, you write about something called restorative justice as a new or, or innovative approach to dealing with sexual assault. What does that mean within this context? And then maybe we can talk about uh, the impact and whether you think it could be beneficial.
0: Yeah, it's such an important question. And it, it's, it comes at the end of my book in a, in a chapter about sort of how to make these allegations matter and what does accountability look like. Turns out many survivors are looking for something called restorative justice. That's an alternative way of resolving disputes outside of the criminal justice system that starts from the proposition that it did happen. It starts from the offender taking responsibility for what was done and then involving community members, including the offender and the survivor, often their family members, their friends in a sustained conversation about how to repair the harms that were done. And so this is a collaborative effort. This is something that is often very centered on the survivor and the survivor's needs, but also views the offender as someone who should come out of this experience changed and you know having grown, having learned. And so when it works well, it can empower survivors, it can make them feel validated, vindicated, and in theory, restored, right? That's the idea, restorative justice. We see this on college campuses uh, right now more than anywhere else. That's the place where this model has kind of taken hold. Although there there are moves to sort of implement it as a kind of criminal justice diversion, that's newer. When it works, It really can be what survivors want. And I tell a story in the book about a high school girl, young woman who came through this process entirely changed and transformed. She was able to hear uh, the person who did this to her, a a boy in high school, a young man, um, explain his thinking, um, acknowledge that what he did was wrong
1: And he had said something to the effect that I knew that since you're a good girl, I needed to force it more. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel comfortable or something.
0: Yeah, something about how, you know, his understanding of of consent meant that good girls had to protest and had to had to resist. And that was sort of how this all was meant to work. And so his kind of grappling with how wrong that was and hearing his mother talk about her own History of abuse um, and and sort of recalibrating uh, his his worldview was something that was really important to Sophia, the, the young woman involved. She ended up saying to him that she needed him not to come to school for a while. She needed to go. He, she needed for him to go onto his social media uh, channels and let people know that she hadn't lied because initially. That was the story that he had put out.
1: Again, the power of being believed and respected.
0: That's right. And and this, again, was very meaningful for her. So I, I tell the story because I think I want to illustrate how it can work, why it can work, and you know what it means to be vindicated and validated, to be believed, and to have someone care. I also, just as a cautionary note, talk about worries that if the institution isn't truly committed to working through this problem and to thinking about it in a systemic way it can be or can be perceived as a way of of brushing a problem under the carpet and i and i think it's important to include that perspective as well
1: it seems particularly when you know for example with sexual assaults and rapes in in high school or in college or even you know, unfortunately, these things happen in middle schools. Um, this could be a powerful tool, or or perhaps more broadly, as um, you know, a first incidence or a first accusation. This may be uh, an option, um, but again, you write about the idea that if if the perpetrator is not taking it seriously, it can seem like a, a get out of jail free card with just, uh, you know, some community service.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it really, I think depends on the offender coming to it with a, a good faith willingness to, you know, fully accept responsibility and, and, and to work to repair the harm and to have a skilled practitioner facilitating these difficult conversations. I think that those are really important ingredients for, for the success of this kind of restorative justice process.
1: Deborah Turkheimer is a professor at Northwestern University School of Law. Professor, thank you for the time and for your your patience in talking through this important topic.
0: I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me on today. For more legal explainers and interviews with the Titans of Law, visit TalksonLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksonLaw.com podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLA podcast.